I was looking at studies in, in Barna, which does a lot of church research, said that 88% of all Americans have a Bible in their home. 88% of all Americans. But you know how many of those Americans, what percentage of those Americans actually read that Bible? One third, 33% of all Americans who have a Bible actually read it. And yet the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. Over five billion copies of the Bible have been sold. And now that we have devices such as iPads and iPhones and Androids, over 250 million downloads of the Bible app have taken place on different unique devices. 250 million downloads. It's not the accessibility. It's not our ability to have the Word of God in our hands and oftentimes it's the struggle. It's the ability to understand what is going on in God's Word that is the struggle for us. So to start with, before we even get into that first word, the word of, of the four small words, I just want to talk about how significant it is that we spend time in God's Word and what exactly is the Word of God. Well, what the Word of God is, is the Word of God is, is what He has written for us over time. It actually came and was written in three different languages over the period of time, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. This is actually why pastors who study to become pastors actually have to learn two of those languages, Hebrew for the Old Testament, Greek for the New Testament. It was written in three languages over 1,600 years by 40 different authors in multiple styles, poetic for the Psalms, narratives for the Gospels, for Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, so on and so forth, Uh, letters such as Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, they were written as a letter, wisdom literature like the Proverbs, Or you have apocalyptic literature like the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, which oftentimes is filled with imagery that we start reading going, I don't even have a clue how to understand that kind of imagery. It was written in multiple styles in two sections that we call the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, in understanding Old Testament and New Testament, oftentimes in today's world, we'll use Old Testament as less relevant and new as more relevant, right? Old, less relevant, new, more relevant. Old is, is, is not as important, new is more important or better. But that's not how it was delineated Old and New Testament. What Old Testament mean is, is Old Testament is just everything that came before Jesus, that pointed to Jesus. And New Testament is the life of Jesus and the early church that points back at Jesus. So if you notice, it's all centered on Jesus. It's just the Old Testament points forward to him. The New Testament points back at him. Old and New Testament. And then when we talk about the scriptures, we will oftentimes use these three words to explain or describe God's word. It's the inspired, inerrant, consistent word of God. What that means is this, it's inspired. So even though it was written by 40 different authors, those authors didn't write things that were just whatever they wanted to write. They didn't write their own opinions or their own ideas. To be inspired means it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So those writers, those 40 authors, only wrote as the Holy Spirit inspired in them to write. So therefore, it's not the word of Moses or Peter or Matthew, but it is God's word spoken through those authors written on these pages for you, these 66 different books. It's an errant, meaning since it is inspired by the Holy Spirit, since it's God's word, there are no errors in this book. There are no errors in what God is saying. 
Because God wouldn't deceive us and God, God wouldn't say one thing and mean another thing, but it is inerrant. Every single word is what God intended it to be. Which is why when we talk about the Word of God, we don't say that, that the Scriptures contain the Word of God. We say that the Scriptures are the Word of God. And there's a difference, right? So, so if I would say that this glass, I don't have one, but just pretend, this glass contains water, you would go, okay, there's water in it, but is there anything else? Because it could contain, could contain other things. I, I could drop some flavoring into it, or there could be some poison in it, or right there could be something else you don't know about. But I say it contains water, but that would be different from if I said, this glass is a glass of water. And is means that that's what it is. There's nothing else in it. It is it or it contains it. And we would say this doesn't just contain the word of God, because if we would say it contains the word of God, it could contain the ideas and the opinions of man. It could, it could contain our own commentary. It could contain things that God didn't want it to contain. But we don't say it contains the word of God. We say that every single book of the 66 books of the Bible and every single verse and every single word is the word of God. It's what he wanted to say. Now, if that's true, then the truth is this, that it's consistent. What we mean by consistent is this, that God's word will never mean what it has never meant, and God's word will always mean what it has always meant. So if you're reading a passage of scripture and going, I wonder what that means, the question you ask is, what did the original author and the Holy Spirit intend for that passage to mean? Because it will always mean what it has always meant throughout time. God's word doesn't change with our culture. It doesn't change with the opinions that we have about what lifestyle should be acceptable in the world today. God's word speaks very clearly, consistently, what it's, how it's always spoken. So then, as we pour through scriptures, if we wanna know God, the way we know God is by knowing the scriptures which is why we continually encourage you to spend time in the Word of God, to bring your Bibles to worship, to mark in them, to, 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 to read them alongside of us as we're reading the Scriptures so, so that you would know what God is saying. One of my favorite preachers has said it this way. He says, he says if you're spending so much time in God's Word, if your Bible is so used that your Bible is falling apart, your life probably isn't. I love that. If your Bible's falling apart, your life probably isn't. It doesn't mean your life is perfect. It doesn't mean that, that you'll have the perfect job and the perfect income. And the, it doesn't mean that, but it means that you will understand the God who is with you even when life isn't perfect. Which is why we want you to spend time in God's Word. But we know one of the struggles about spending time in God's Word is, is not knowing the Word of God or having access to the Word of God, but understanding the Word of God. It's a little bit like this. It's like standing at the edge of the ocean and looking at the water in front of you. Any of you ever stood at the edge of the ocean? Any of you stand on the beaches of an ocean before? Yeah. And if you're standing there and you're just looking at what's right in front of you, it's pretty easy to take those first few steps into the water. Even children can take those first few steps into the water of an ocean. But the further you go out into the ocean, the stronger the waves become, the stronger the currents become, and the stronger you have to be. And therefore, children can't go as far as adults can go. And adults can't go as far as expert swimmers can go. And expert swimmers can't even look at the ocean and go, you know what, I'm gonna swim to the other side of it. Because you go, it's too far and it's too deep and I will never make it. 
And I think there's times where we pull our Bibles out and we start to, to read through it and you go, man, this is like standing at the edge of the ocean. Like I can start to wade into it, but the further I get into it, the deeper it becomes and the harder it is and, and, and it's too deep and it's too far and it's too wide and I don't get it. And, and that's why we wanna continually spend time in God's word because one of the things we believe, it's, it's like a swimmer, that the more time you spend swimming, the stronger you get, and the stronger you get, the further and the longer you can go in swimming. And the more you're in God's word, the more God's word is in you, and the easier it is to come to understand what God is saying to you, and the word that he is speaking to you throughout these pages. And what we wanna do in this series for you is we wanna give you four small words, these four small words of, between, with, and in. And by small, I know between isn't that small, but, but small meaning seemingly insignificant words, of, between, with, and in. And use these four words over these next four weeks to paint a picture of the entire narrative of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, what is God saying to us? So let's start with our first word, of. As we get into that word, what I want to share with you this morning is I want to share some artwork with you this morning. And then I want to ask you the question, um, as I put these pictures, these pieces of art up on the screen, how much do you think these pieces of art sold when they went on the market? How much do you think these pieces of art are worth? So here's the first one. This is called the Sal Salvatore Mundi. It was uh, painted by Leonardo da Vinci. It's a painting of Jesus. He's holding a glass orb in his hand. When this piece of artwork was sold, how much do you think it's sold for? What do you think? $4,000. Close. Ish. Four million? Closer. $450.3 million. $450.3 million. All right, here's the next one. It's called Interchange by a guy named uh, Wilhelm de Kooning. I probably just completely mispronounced his name, but, but uh, this was uh, inspired by an interchange in New York City. How much do you think this one sold for? 100,000, 300 million dollars. 300 million dollars, all right. So the, they're getting decreasingly less in value. So here's the next one. This one is called Card Players by Paul Cezanne. What do you think? 50,000. 250 million. 250 million for that piece of artwork. Here's the next one. This is called number 17A. Um, when you hear the name associated with it, you'll understand this is actually by a modern famous artist. It's a, it's a Jackson Pollock. So some of you heard of Jackson Pollock before, the artist. How much do you think this Jackson Pollock is worth? $200 million, $200 million. Somebody guessed 50 cents at a different service. So, Here's my favorite one. This one is just called, the title of it is number six, violet, green, and red. I wonder why they called it number six, violet, green, and red. This is done by a guy named Mark Rothko. Somebody after the last service told me because, because this person works with art that the, the reason that this is a significant piece is people didn't understand the contrast of colors at that time. So I probably still don't understand the contrast of colors. But how much do you think that one sold for? 100 million? Close, 186 million. 186 million for that piece of artwork. 
right? All right, how much did this one sell for? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so you're like, it's priceless. Yeah, for mom and dad, but on the open market, probably not that much, right? Right? So as I was doing this and, and preparing the message and just sharing with a couple of people what I was going to do, somebody asked me, Pastor, are you going to share your famous piece of artwork? And I said, I don't know about that. They said, you should ask. So, so I guess I've, every service I've asked, would you like me to share with you my favorite and famous piece of my own artwork? Yes? Okay. All right. So I will share it with you, but I actually draw it on the spot. I mean, that's, that's how much I love and care for you is I will actually do it on the spot. Those of you who have had me for confirmation class, you have seen me draw this before. Yeah, see, some of you said this. Anyone remember from our confirmants what this is called? It's called Moose on a Mountain. Moose on a Mountain. So here you go. You'll get it. There you go. It's from a distance, right? It's, you're looking at the moose from a distance. From a distance, it just looks like a dot. It's moose on a mountain. How much do you think that sells for? Yeah, okay, never mind. We're not going to go there. You're like, Pastor, why in the world did you share this with us today? I shared this with you because I want to ask this question. How do you determine something's value? How do you determine your value. Do you know that God has artwork? Do you know what God's artwork is? It's creation. Have you ever seen a beautiful sunrise or a sunset? Been there on a beautiful day on a crystal lake as you see the reflection all around you? It's God art, God's artwork. We hear all about God's artwork in Genesis chapter 1. As God, in the midst of the formless and the void that was all around him, spoke into that formlessness and that void, and he created. And on day one, he created light and dark. And on day two, he created the heavens and the seas, meaning he created the waters. And he, it says he separated the waters above from the waters below. And the waters above he called the heavens, and the waters below were the seas. And on day three, he created the earth and the vegetation. And if you've ever asked yourself, I could never remember the order of creation, let me just encourage you, all you have to remember is days one, two, and three, and you will remember days four, five, and six in the order of creation. Because not only is God a creative God, an artistic God, a God who loves beauty, God is also a God of order. And he creates everything in a very orderly way. And so God takes days one, two, and three, and out of days one, two, and three, he uses them to create in what he creates in days four, five, and six. So day one, he creates light and dark, and on day four, he takes the light and the dark, and he makes the sun, moon, and stars. And on day two, he creates the heavens and the seas, and on day five, he fills the heavens and the seas with the birds and the fish. And on day three, he creates the earth and the vegetation. And on day six, he fills the earth and utilizes the vegetation by creating animals. But he's not done that. In the midst of this orderliness of creation, God says, I'm not finished just by creating uh, the skies and the heavens and the seas and the fish and the birds and the animals, but there is something more significant that is, is the pinnacle of my creation. And he creates that in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. 
And let them have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Did you see in that passage that God created man and woman in a very different way than he created anything else? Because he uses a phrase when he talks about how he created man and woman that he never uses in any other part of his creation. What is that phrase? That he created us in his own image. He created us in the image of God. That makes us special. It makes us separate. And it defines us in a way that nothing else is defined throughout the scriptures. So as we talk about that word of, I want to use that phrase, image of God, and, and, and break it down to those three words so that we might understand what does it mean that we are made in the image of God? Well, that word image, to start with, means that, that something represents something else. That when you see one thing, you see the other. So when you see the artwork, you see the artist. So that when you see the fingerprint, you know the one who has made that imprint on the world. And you are the fingerprint of God. You are the pinnacle of his creation. You are the exact representation of the one who created you. What an amazing, amazing gift that is that you are made in the image of God. That word image is actually used in other places in the scriptures, but it's always translated differently. It's the word that is used when the Israelites are, are gathered around Mount Sinai and Moses has been up on the mountain and he's been up there a little bit too long and the people of Israel are wondering, is Moses ever coming back down off the mountain? And so, so they go to Aaron and they say, fashion for us the God who has brought us out of Egypt. And so Aaron says, bring all your gold to me. And he takes the gold and, and he melts all of the gold down from the earrings and the necklaces and he creates a golden idol of a calf. That word idol is the exact same word that is used here of God who says, I have created you in the image of God. Because if you think about an idol, like a golden calf, or if you look at the Egyptians who created golden idols that looked like things in creation, an idol is really just a golden image of something else that's living. And that's what he says about us, that we are just the image of the one who created us, a representation in this world. We are the image, but we are the image of something. What does that word of mean? That word of, and that's what's significant about our understanding of who we are, that word of actually means identity. It means usually either coming from or belonging to. So for instance, if I would say Aaron Rodgers of the Green Bay Packers, you would know that Aaron Rodgers either belongs to or comes from that team, right? He is from that. Or if I would have an apple up here and I would say, this is the apple of that tree, you would know, okay, well that's an apple tree because this is an apple and that apple belongs to or it comes from that tree. It is an identity thing. One of my favorite movies of all time is the movie Miracle. It's about the USA hockey team in 1980 who beat the Russian hockey team. Any, any of you ever seen that movie, the movie Miracle? I love that movie. 
My, one of my favorite scenes is the U.S. hockey team has just lost and, and played terribly, and the coach is really upset about it, so instead of letting them go back to the locker room, he makes them get back on the ice and skate sprints almost all night long, and they start turning the lights off, and, and everybody is going, and he says, I'll lock up the rink, but we're, we're skating. And, and in the midst of that, he tells them a significant thing. He says to them, he goes, he goes men, I need you to remember this that the name on the front of your jersey means a whole lot more than the name on the back of your jersey. And that phrase has always stuck with me. Because those two names mean something, don't they? The name on the back of the jersey is usually the last name. And that defines what? It defines your family, right? Where you come from is your family. The name on the front of the jersey defines what? Your team, right? That's the team you come from. And you come from both of those. You are of both of those. I remember when I would go out as a high school or college student, my dad would always say to me when I would go out, he would say, say Joel, just remember, don't do anything when you're going out with your friends that would tarnish the name of the family that you bear. Because you're of the Howards. And represent the Howards well. That's the name on the back. But we also wear a name on the front. And that's the team, the family, the family of God that we are a part of. And we are called to represent both of those families well. And God has created you uniquely with an identity that is greater than anything this world could ever tell you so that you might know not just the name on the back, but the name on the front that you are of God because you are in the image of God. Or in other places, the ofs of God include that you are a child of God. You are a son or daughter of God through the waters of baptism, just as we saw in the life of a new little one who was welcomed into the family of God today. You are of the family of God. You are a man or a woman of God. And one of my favorite titles in scriptures is you are the beloved of God. That means God loves you. That he loves you so much that no matter how unfaithful we are, he is faithful to us. We are made in the image of, but then that last part is God. In order to be in the image of God, we under, have to understand who is God. In fact, there's a story in the scriptures and the gospels where Jesus is walking along with his disciples and he comes to Caesarea Philippi and he sits down with his disciples. And he says to his disciples, who do people say I am? He says, well, well, some people say you're a prophet, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist. But then Jesus looks at them and says, says, that's great, but who do you say I am? Can I tell you of all of the questions of life and all of the questions of scriptures, the most important question that you can ever answer in your life is that question that Jesus asks Peter. But who do you say Jesus is? It's the most important question you can ever answer. Who is Jesus to you? Because the way that you understand Jesus is the way you understand who Jesus is to you. Because if you see Jesus as just somebody who helps you to get things right, who makes you a better person, then when you are a bad person or do wrong things, then he is a God who judges you and who stands against you instead of for you. If you see Jesus as just the person who who comes in to fix your life, then when things are going well, you don't need him, and you only need him when things are going wrong. But if you see Jesus as the one who has come into this world to be the lover of your souls because he cares about you, and he is there for you, and he is always with you because he suffered and died on a cross for you, then you will know that God is a God who claims you as his child.
And he has a greater purpose for your life. You are made in the image of God. But why does this matter? Let me give you two reasons that this matters. The first reason this matters is because wherever you find your identity, there you will find your sense of worth, your sense of value. I mean, this is where we find titles, right? If you're the president, if you're the CEO, if you're a manager, or if you're just an entry-level recruit of a company, it gives you a sense of value in your company. Or in sports, if you're an all-star or a utility player or an MVP, it gives you a sense of value. And oftentimes contracts and salaries are set according to the title and the accomplishments you have. And so often we think that we have to do more because the world tells us that you are not enough. And if we levy our sense of worth according to the titles that we have from the identity that this world gives to us, we will always be striving for more and more and more because the truth is, is the titles that we bear, they don't last. No CEO stays as a CEO forever. One day they will retire or be called home. But while pastors oftentimes bear the pastor throughout the title pastor throughout their whole life, at some point pastors retire or get called home, but their role changes. We may be mom and dad, but at some point children move out and that role changes. And if we think our value is according to the titles that we bear in the world that we live in, then our sense of value will never be constant, will be always changing. Or another way to think about it is this way. If I were to put the artwork back up on the screen for you, which of those pieces of artwork would you most identify with according to the value you feel in your life right now? The $450 million Leonardo da Vinci or the moose on a mountain? Which one do you feel that your life is worthy of? And all too often, I think we feel closer to the moose on the mountain than the Leonardo da Vinci. And yet God reminds you how priceless a piece of art that you are. You are so priceless that he gave up his life on the cross for you and for me. In fact, this is what God says about you. Would you read these words with me? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How does God define your value? He says, you are his workmanship. You are his artistry. You are his masterpiece, created in the image of God, and the world does not get to define your identity and your value. And if you struggle with that, let me give you three questions that I believe can help you understand why you struggle with value and where you're finding your value from. The first one is this, is who do you look to for approval in your life? When you want to know you're approved, uh, when you want to know that your life is, is worthwhile, who do you look to? Who defines your value? That's the second one. Who makes you feel like a million dollars or makes you feel like you're insignificant? It's where you find your value. The third one is this. What title, action, or role do you cling to to make you feel like you have a worthwhile life? 
If it's anything other than Jesus and what he says about you, what he has done for you, then you have allowed an idol to start to define your life. But the truth is, is that the identity that God gives you, gives you a priceless value because God did not create anything else in the image of God and God did not die for anything else. He didn't die for your dog or your cat. He didn't die for monkeys or elephants. He didn't die for cars and iPhones. He didn't die for companies and nations. Jesus died for you. He gave his life for you. The second thing it does is our identity gives us a purpose. He created us in Christ Jesus to do the work which he created us to do. And this world cannot tell you your purpose, only God can. I I love this quote by Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein said this, everybody is a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing it's stupid, right? And how often do we allow the world to define us in a way that God never would? And we believe we are worthless because we have allowed the world to tell us one thing while God would tell us something completely different. The world does not get to tell you who you are and does not get to define you as a child of this world. But God tells you that you are a child of God, that you are made in the image of God. That word of gives you your identity. And when we understand our identity, we will understand our value and our purpose. So that over the next three weeks, as we continue to page through the scriptures, to understand how how does the word between, with, and in give us an image of God's entire story, which then our story is found within, that we would understand that our story begins at the very beginning When God created everything out of his artistic talent, a beautiful world filled with fish and birds and animals and vegetation and trees, the earth and the sky and the moon and the stars, and then he created you, but only you and me in the image of God. And when we understand that we were made in the image of God, then we will understand how priceless our lives are. So priceless that he would pay with his own life so that he could have your life. In Jesus' name, amen.